So Mark's gospel is where you want to turn. I'm really excited about this story. We get to jump back into the gospel narrative we've been working through. Mark's gospel, chapter 5. Why don't you pray with me? Father, we are thankful that we can gather and even thankful to be inside, but we pray that you would cool this room either with a gentle breeze or with the AC beginning to function uh, the way that it's intended to. Uh, God, I pray that, that we could sit in this moment and not be distracted, but hear from you. There's a story here that's not just true because it's historical, but it's true because it depicts your heart. God, we want to hang on to those things, catch those things, the truths that we see in this story about who you are, God, and who you promised to be for us. Jesus, we're not the Savior in this story. We're not the hero in any story. But in this story, we're the broken. In this story, we're the one who needs a touch. And that's true of each of us. And so Jesus, don't just teach us through a story, but God, reach down and touch us through the things that we'll slow down to consider together, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You probably remember that Mark is the earliest of the four Gospels that was written. It was written and then it was uh, circulated by the 60s A.D., so shortly after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. And the reason that that's so significant is in that era, historians tell us that the Roman Empire was in power and was hunting down early followers of Jesus, arresting them, torturing them, in the end martyring them, taking their very lives. They were being crucified by the droves. They were thrown to dogs and ignited, ignited as candles in Nero's palace. What was happening was terrible. And those are the people that Mark has in mind as he sculpts his autobiography of the life of Jesus, hand-selecting stories and moments and vignettes that he's hearing from Peter as he and Peter are traveling throughout the land, telling people about Jesus. He's piecing together this biography of the life of Jesus to write to those who are suffering deep and gnarly persecution. Remember, he begins with what we refer to as an insipid, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. It's a Latin word. It means to commence or to begin. It's a one-sentence summation of the message of the whole book. And so he starts with that power-packed sentence, the beginning of the gospel, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ. He communicates to us that this is an eternal story, the beginning. In the beginning, he's reaching back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. He's taking your mind back to Eden, where humanity and creation itself were lost, but he will climax his story with the crucifixion and the resurrection, where creation will once again, and humanity as well, will be restored. And so he's taking our minds in the beginning back to Eden. It's a story about Eden. It's an eternal story. He says, in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Christ, the Christ, the Mashiach, the Messiah, he's referencing now the nation of Israel and the history of the Jews. He's telling you it's not just an eternal story, it's an anticipated one about God's promised deliverer that he promised from the garden itself. It's not just an eternal story and an anticipated story, but he tells you it's a story about a king and a kingdom. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Caesar Augustus had taken that very title on it for himself. It was imprinted on all the coins throughout the empire. Uh, the, the God, the Son of God, and then Augustus' head right there. What he's telling his people 
What Mark is making sure to communicate is that this is a story about one who will reign triumphant as king over a kingdom forever. It's an eternal story. It's an anticipated story. And it's a story about a king and a kingdom which mattered so much to people who were suffering at the hands of the empire that sat over them. Remember, Jesus then goes out preaching the gospel, and it's the gospel of the kingdom, Mark chapter 1, verse 14 tells you. That's what he does. He goes out preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and all of his teachings are addressing what it will be like to be a part of his kingdom. And then his life and ministry give people a glimpse into that kingdom where people are made well and made whole. They're set free, where there's joy and love and peace. The problem is, as followers of Jesus, even today, for them it was true too. We live in the reality and the tension of the now and not yet. Theologians, they refer to it as the kingdom of God being now here. That's Jesus saying it's at the door. You can reach out and touch it. It's now here and still coming. You see, Jesus has redeemed this world, purchasing it with his own blood, but he's in the process of restoring this world. The, the restoration of this world is still unfolding. It's still coming where one day we know wrongs will be made right and tears will be wiped away where people will all be made whole. You see, until that day, though, the promise of the kingdom is not that things will be easy. It's that one day things will be made right again. That's the promise of the kingdom. So we live in the tension of the now. The kingdom is now here. We get to experience life with God now through Jesus. It's now here and still coming. We live in the tension of that. We wait for the day when heaven and earth collide again and coexist together again. But until then, yeah, we're a member of an invisible kingdom. We're a colony of heaven here on the earth we give people a, a, a taste and a foreshadow glimpse of what it will be like to be with Jesus the King when we treat them as a member of the kingdom, when we treat them by kingdom principles, where we love them the way that Jesus has loved us. However, until that day fully arrives, where heaven and earth collide and coexist together again, until that day comes, we unfortunately have moments in time where the brokenness of life in this world collides with us personally, and it leaves us absolutely shattered. It's when a pregnancy turns into a miscarriage. It's when our child receives that diagnosis. It was when your teenager became a prodigal or when your career no longer followed the trajectory that you had set it on or that you had planned. It's when you watch as someone else's memories begin to fade as they're marred by dementia. It's when relationships are ended or the pain of betrayal sinks very deep in us. It's when we pray and nothing seems to happen. It's when we hope until it feels beyond all hope. And Mark does this. In his biography of the life of Jesus, he's going to introduce us to two stories of two different people who have lost all hope. Two individual stories that include having to wait even when there's pain that's become unbearable for them. We're, we've read the story already in the, in the previous chapter of Jesus walking along the sea. Remember, he was asleep in the storm. Now we dive into a story where God makes you wait. Even when you don't understand, even when it's extremely painful to trust, where you're waiting for heaven and earth to collide in a beautiful way, but instead the brokenness of life in our world collides with you instead and leaves you wanting something more. 
Now, several years ago, I heard someone as they walked through this passage that we're about to read together, they first gave some basic backdrop and, and story uh, for us to know before jumping into this narrative that I think is really helpful. And so I want to do the same very quickly. Before we jump into the story that we'll read in Mark 5, I just want to share a few things from the Old Testament that I think are things that we should know that I'm confident that Jesus uh, present audience and even Mark's first readers would have been aware of things that they knew that maybe we should know. And so real quick, I'm going to give you some backdrop and it's three specific things, uh, three topics. One regarding isolation. The second will be regarding prayer shawls. And then a third about a prophetic promise regarding the Messiah. And I'm going to do this really quick. So the first is regarding isolation. And I'll turn to Leviticus 15 to read this to you. But in Leviticus 15, God addressed his people about, well, if you know the premise of the book, the premise of the book is that God wants to be with his people. And so it starts with telling you all about the tabernacle, the meeting place of God being set up among men. And then he gives direction, instruction to the priest on how to get people clean. But then he gives basic instruction to the people on how to stay clean so they can continue to interface, interact with God and with their community. And so this is the part in the story where it shifts from talking about the tabernacle to what the priests are to do to now telling people a part of the culture and society, here's what you need to do to stay clean. Sacrifices will make you clean, cover your sin for a moment, but here's how to not defile yourself. And in Leviticus 15, and it might just pop up, yes it did, here's what it says. In Leviticus 15, beginning in verse 19, if a woman has a discharge, and the discharge from her body is blood. She shall be set apart seven days, and whomever touches her shall be unclean until evening. Welcome to church this morning. I'm sure you're glad you're here. This was probably on your list of topics you were hoping we'd discuss in a public setting. God continues and tells the people that anything that she lies on, anything she sits on, Whoever touches her or touches anything that she sat on, verse 24, and if any man even lies with her, it talks about how they would all become unclean. Verse 25, if a woman has a discharge of blood for many days other than at the time of her customary impurity or it runs beyond her usual time of impurity, all the days of her unclean discharge shall be as the days of her customary impurity. Track this, she shall be unclean. Skipping ahead to verse 31, Leviticus 15, because I know you'll go back and read this later. Thus you shall separate the children of Israel from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness when they defile my tabernacle that is among them. Okay, now just remember for a moment that when we read something like this, we need to remember it's written to a nomadic group of people that are a desert-dwelling tribe thousands of years before the word hygiene was even invented. This book was written by Moses somewhere around 1400 B.C., and here it's addressing when a woman hits that time of the month, she should stay away from her household and the community for seven days. And, and if it's a, a health issue that stretches beyond that usual cycle, then she should stay away from people and the community as long as she's sick, which could be a day or, or an extra week or an extra month or an extra year or maybe even a lifetime. And over time, I've heard my fair share of classless jokes about this passage, that we should do what the Bible says and make, make wives move outside when they're PMSing. And if that's the attitude you have, your, your wife might actually like a week away a month. Um, but the text doesn't really have a sexist tone. It really doesn't. This is not sexism. It's really not. It carries with it a tone that's shaped by a very primitive culture that's marked by fear of what's unknown, undiagnosed, untreatable illnesses that could easily spread. 
And as we discussed several weeks ago, remember we talked about the idea of a leper, and we, we talked about how there was no real way for them to clearly distinguish between a basic rash, maybe even from the heat or humidity in a meeting room where the AC is not working very well. A simple rash could not always be easily distinguished from a life-threatening illness, so any rash that popped up on their skin they took drastic measures with. Or in this case, think about it. A simple monthly period was not easily distinguished from a life-threatening contagious illness, and so in order to protect the people and the community, God sets these parameters in order to keep from things spreading. So picture this desert-dwelling primitive nomadic tribe where a well-balanced diet and, and good rest and, and the things that would keep a cycle regular were not always guaranteed, so that cycle would potentially no longer function uh, like clockwork, it would be uh, far less of a rhythm like that. And then you add a primitive understanding of health and hygiene and the fear of infectious disease connected to that, and then a lack of ability to stop or, or to control the blood that was hemorrhaging. And, and all of a sudden, you begin to understand that this was a messy situation, and you begin to understand why there were such dramatic measures, drastic measures that were taken. And you need to know this was drastic. You couldn't touch or be touched. You're cut off from society. There's no human interaction. There's not an embrace or a hug or a kiss. There's nothing. Whether it was with your husband or your child, instantly things would change. You were now untouchable. And worst of all, you were also barred from even the meeting place uh, to go and to meet and commune with God. You were kept from, held separate from even that place. And this wasn't punishment. This wasn't punitive. This was about protecting the community's health. So you need to understand something about the isolation that was a part of someone's life who was pronounced unclean. But real quick, also prayer shaws and then a promise, real quick. Numbers 15, prayer shaws. In Numbers 15, God spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel, tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a blue th thread in the tassels of the corners and you shall have the tassel that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them that you may not follow the harlotry to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined and that you may remember to do all of my commandments and be holy for your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, the land to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Okay, track with me. God instructs his people that they were to dress different than the surrounding nations, specifically that they should have tassels that hang off these exaggerated corners of their garments and that they were to function as a reminder to, to remember and to do the things that God had commanded them and to keep them from the natural desires and inclinations that existed in their heart. It was a visible reminder of a special connection they had with God and that special connection was possible because God had delivered them from bondage. And so they were to wear them as a constant reminder. And Orthodox Jews still today, we're in 2021, they still wear these prayer shawls with these tassels in corners, the kanaf, the, the 613 little tassels that come off the end, one for each of the commandments in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, that would be fastened to those exaggerated corners. Okay, now here's the third thing, the isolation, the prayer shahs that were reminders to remember God and to do the things that he's asked you to do. But there's also a promise regarding Messiah. Malachi, it's the final prophet before a long period of silence, before Messiah will come. Will come. Malachi chapter 4, Malachi wraps up his book with a prophecy about Messiah's looming arrival when he says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will stubble, or will be stubble, and the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall arise. 
with healing in his wings and his kanaf. It says here, the son of righteousness. It's, it's talking about the dawn. I love the imagery that not S-O-N, S-U-N. It's talking about the dawn of a new age, the dawn of a do, new day. And that new day is of righteousness, of things being made right again. And under his wings, or some translations will say his rays, it's the Hebrew word kanaf that we just read about with the exaggerated corners and tassels that would hang off of uh, specifically the rabbi's garments. Under the healing, or under his wings, under the kanaf, there will be healing under his wings. You see, people began to understand this passage from this prophet as a promise that Messiah, when he'd come, that he'd have special healing power in his kanaf, under the wings of that shawl that would go over his head and wrap out to his arms where he'd wind the tassel between his fingers. It would look like wings as he'd pass you by. Rabbis would wear this, still do today. And people began to believe, if I could just get close enough then to Messiah... If I could just get under his wings, if I could just touch the corner, the hem of his garment, then I would experience the healing that the prophet had promised. Okay, so track with me. With all that in mind, the isolation that was involved in being unclean, and then also that shawl that was worn by the rabbis, Jesus the rabbi walking in it, and then the promise that there would be healing under those wings if you could just touch the kanaf. Read with me, chapter 5, Gospel of Mark. Verse 21, now when Jesus had crossed over again by the boat to the other side, he's going back to familiar territory. He's shifting from a Gentile land where he just had a showdown with a demon and a bunch of pigs to now going back to a familiar place on the other side of the Galilee, probably back near Capernaum. Now when he crossed over again by the boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered together to him and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly saying, my little girl, she lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed and that she will live. So Jesus went with him. And a great multitude followed him and thronged him, thronged around him. Okay, now track with me. This, this guy we're introduced to, it says that he's a synagogue leader. He's responsible for the oversight of the local synagogue. There's one temple in Jerusalem, but every little community, Jewish outcropping and village, had their own little synagogue inside those villages, inside those regions. He'd be a respected, educated, affluent person of influence in the community, respected as an insider, a who's who. And this for him was vocational suicide to run to Jesus like he does here, to fall at his feet publicly. This, this was a costly decision to do this. But when you have a little girl who's dying, and we can't miss this because it's just print on a page for us, but this is someone's life and family, their home, their baby girl. And when your little girl's dying, there's no cost that matters anymore. For his peers, at best, they're neutral with Jesus. You might remember he's performed a couple of miracles on the Sabbath inside of local synagogues, and they didn't end very well. In fact, the last time it happened, it finished with them making a statement that they're now conspiring against Jesus to get rid of him. But when you're this desperate, it no longer matters. I don't know if you've ever seen someone who's just in hysterics, who's so shaken by a situation that you start to realize that, that when a moment like this hits, you're not worried about your hair 
or your outfit or your, reputa- your reputation amongst the onlookers who watch you just feel like you come apart at the seams. All you want is help. And for him, his baby girl is dying. It's literally translated, she is at death's door. So Jesus, would you please just come? I mean, what was the moment like when he wrestles through the reality of the brutal situation that's lying on a bed in front of him? What was it like when he came to the point where he decided to leave her bedside to try to find Jesus the healer? I mean, how, what would that have done to a dad's heart? How would he have pulled himself away in that moment? I mean, there was a moment where, where he exchanged a, a final kiss on a, on a feverish forehead, not knowing if he'd see her alive again. Maybe that was the final time he'd have an exchange like that. We wonder, was there a moment then where he's pulling himself away from the clutches of his heartbroken wife who's just as desperate at him but can't understand that he feels that his desperation is driving him to find the healer where she's saying, you can't leave me here alone in a moment like this. This is a brutal moment that's more than just print on a page. We're meant to feel a moment like this as people, as part of a family. And the relief, my goodness, the relief this father must have felt, this little girl's daddy, that he must have felt when Jesus just agreed to go with him. But the relief was short-lived because there's an interruption in Jesus' journey towards his baby girl. You find it in the next verse. So Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged around him. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years, and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. While Jesus is in a race right now with death itself, the death of this little girl, a nobody, nameless woman who's had her own painful experience of having to live in the tension of waiting and having the brokenness of the world collide with her and now living in isolation interrupts that journey and that race that Jesus has against death itself. I mean, think about the contrast of these two individuals, though, that we've just been introduced to. One is an insider. The other is an outcast. You see, Mark draws our attention here intentionally to the contrast that exists where Jairus, his name and his title, his credentials are given, whereas there's a nameless woman who approaches no title at all. She approaches Jesus with no title at all except for the title of someone who's penniless. These two characters sat on opposite sides of the social spectrum. They're two opposite extremes in society, but clearly Jesus is not a respecter of persons, and that breathes life into everyone's lungs to know. You see, Jesus gave the same amount of love and care and affection to both the one that mattered, quote unquote, and the one that society called the outcast and had discarded long before. In fact, it's been 12 years, it tells us. This nameless woman, she's been unclean for 12 years. Remember that this possesses not just a a physical problem that's being communicated here, but a social and a spiritual problem as well, because her health challenges left her as someone who was marked unclean, which meant that she would be left isolated, is what we had already read in Leviticus. It's a peculiar thing to me that Mark shares a detail here, that, that this tragic detail that Dr. Luke, one of the other gospel writers, chose to leave out. And that's that Mark tells us that she not only suffered from her disease, but that she deeply suffered also from her so-called cures that she paid for. 
Her illness must have caused her physical and psychological, social and emotional, even economical suffering, which is something Mark mentions here. In verse 26, where it says that she suffered, it's a graphic word that actually is used to explain torture or torment. She was tortured and tormented by the treatment plans at the hands with the treatment of doctors who only in the end, Mark says, left her worse off than she started. She spent everything that she had and she's worse off than before, but now she's not just isolated, but she's broke. She's broken, she's broken. Talk about depressing. This is isolation in absolutely every form. You see, doctors in the ancient world, they're more like snake oil salesmen or, or magicians, fun, phony, fake, funky magicians at that. In the ancient world, it's in ancient Egypt that there's a papyrus that is that made its way to us since 1500 BC called Eber's Papyrus, where it refers to donkey, dog, gazelle, and fly dung as all being things that were celebrated for their healing properties and their ability to ward off bad spirits. Those were some of the treatment plans. Now, we can stop and go, well, that's 1,500 years before Jesus arrives. That's back when Moses was addressing the people in Leviticus. But things don't get much better. In fact, many modern commentaries will point to a writing that's from Jesus' own contemporaries, the Babylonian Talmud, which is rabbinic writings from this era that were then compiled together. Uh, they reference what to do with a woman who has this malady, what the rabbis taught she should do as treatment, here's, I'll just quote a little excerpt from it. Uh, a woman who's dealing with an issue of blood, here's what they should do. And I quote, let them procure three kapiza. It's a measurement of Persian onions, boil them in wine, make her drink it, and then say to her, cease your discharge. But if not, she should be made to sit at a crossroads, hold a cup of wine in her hand, and if a man comes up from behind and frightens her and exclaims, cease your discharge. You scare her. It's like someone with hiccups now. But if not, take a handful of cumin, a handful of saffron, and a handful of fenugreek are brought and boiled in the wine. She is then made to drink it. And then you say to her again, and I'm not going to have us all say it. It's so weird. But cease your discharge. Can you imagine? What did you learn at church today? And all, that's the only thing that rang in your ears was, well, we all in unison were yelling. There's several other bizarre treatments that are described and given for us, and it, it it, the final last-ditch effort, it culminates in essential oils. Just kidding. Um, it culminates, actually, sorry, I'm going to pay for that one. It culminates, actually, in saying what you should do is you fetch barley grain, which is found inside the dung of a white mule. And if she eats it and holds it in her system for a day, then she'll be cleansed for a day. If she can hold it in for two days, she'll be cleansed for three. If she can hold it in her system for three days, she'll be cleansed forever. Now, the reason I bring this up is just think, this poor woman has been through so much, and it says that the treatment is making it worse, but part of it making it worse is how humiliating this whole process would have been. She's not just sick. She's not just broke, penniless, without hope of help or, or any other remedy to try. She's also very much alone, unclean, separated from family, from community, from God, and she's determined still somehow, if I can just get close enough to touch the kanaf, the hem of his garment... All her resources were gone, and, and we would have thought all hope would have been fleeting with her resources, and yet a glimmer of hope remained. She's exhausted her finances, every last medical treatment option, but apparently her faith has not yet been exhausted. It has just enough strength to lift a weary body, to sneak back into the village upon hearing that Jesus, the miracle-working rabbi, had returned. 
Verse 27, look with me. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt it in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Apparently this woman was someone who was familiar with what the prophets had foretold. That when Messiah would arrive, he'd have healing in his wings. Because one corner would be on one side in his hand, one corner on the other, and the other two would have bounced along the dusty roads behind him, those little corners bouncing along the road that she could reach out and grab hold of, the kanaf. For her to run into the crowd was to put her life in danger. She's unclean. For her to reach out and touch the hem of his garment, though, was a statement of faith. And the statement was that I believe that you're so much more than just a man. I believe you're more than a mere man, that you're the promised deliverer, that there's healing and power in your wings. And immediately it says she's healed, she's set free, she's restored to wholeness and wellness. It even gives us a little hint into just how painful, whatever her condition was, how agonizing it was, because she instantly knew that the, the pain was gone, that the, that the illness had dissipated, that it was no long, longer present in her body. Verse 30. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out from him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done this thing. It says in verse 30 that Jesus perceived that power had gone out from him. It's actually the Greek word dunamis. It, it's from where we get our English word dynamite or dynamic. This is dynamic, transforming power that emerges from Jesus and hits this woman and instantly heals her. And Jesus knows it. In fact, Mark 4 and 5 is really all about Jesus' power. His power over creation, over demons and evil, over hell itself, and over sickness, sickness and death itself as well. You see, Jesus' deity and humanity are both seen in this moment where, where you see this amazing life-changing power, life-giving power, and yet a puzzled face of that familiar rabbi saying, who touched me? In verse 33, it says, the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before Jesus and told him the whole truth. Or another translation is going to read it this way. She told him the whole matter or the, the whole story from beginning to end. Here's how my life began. Here's how it changed so dramatically 12 years ago. Here's what it's looked like along the way. But then everything changed just a moment ago. It says she's terrified. Well, she's not supposed to be even close to a village, much less in the middle of a crowd, much less reaching out to touch a man, much less a rabbi. In fact, Roman historian and politician Pliny and then another Jewish rabbi from the time of Jesus named Rambin were both alive and writing at the time of Christ. And they wrote that an unclean woman could not even speak to a man because their breath, this is a quote, their breath was harmful and their gaze proved detrimental. An unclean woman could not be greeted. Remember, these are not biblical things. These were cultural pieces. They could not walk even along the same road as a man. But she risks a lot to run to Jesus in that culture to reach out and touch him. And now she braces afraid when he turns around and says, who did it? Because she doesn't know what's coming next. Her fear is probably that Jesus is going to let her have it. I mean, how dare she? She's a lawbreaker. She should be punished. She deserves to be humiliated. But Jesus will turn her direction, and instead he says, verse 34, Daughter, your faith has made you well. 
Go in peace and be healed of all your affliction. My daughter, the way he addresses her, we don't know how old she is. We only know that she's been sick for 12 years. You could do some math of when maybe she reaches a point where she even has her first sight. Like, you know she's in her 20s. You assume maybe she's older than... This poor woman has been through so much. Jesus speaks to her, addressing her with the affectionate word for someone's little girl, the wording that you would use inside your home in a safe place to say, my sweet girl. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. It's interesting. Your faith has made you well. It wasn't the kanaf. It wasn't the tassel. It's not a magical article of clothing. That's not what Jesus said. There's a New Testament scholar. His name's N.T. Wright. He says, was it... Jesus' power that rescued the woman or her own faith. Clearly it was Jesus' power, but he says, your faith has rescued you. The answer must be that faith, though itself is powerless, is the channel through which Jesus' power can work. He says, go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Go in peace. Think about this. Peace, shalom. It's way more than just like, go live with the absence of negativity. Go live in the absence of conflict. No, it's a deep sense of being settled, of well-being, of joy, of delight, of harmony with God and man. Literally, step into peace. Think about it. Step back into peace. Wellness and wholeness. Harmony again with all things. In that moment, she was both healed and simultaneously restored back into society, free to roam the market. Free to worship again in a synagogue. Free to embrace her children, to make love to her spouse. Free to be held and to be loved again. As moving as this moment is, as this story is, at least for this woman who, who in that moment was made right again and restored again. All that was lost was restored in that moment. Imagine though for a moment that you're the father who all of a sudden feels forgotten. The desperate parent who has a very sick little girl I mean, we, we imagine that at some point in time where he's watching this all play out, maybe he's not tapping his foot. Maybe it's the moment that the woman tells the, the, the part in her story where she gives the details to Jesus, telling him the whole of the story, that for 12 years I've been sick, where that's a moment where as a dad, his heart broke with her going, wow, 12 years of this. But at the mention of 12, his heart would have broken for another reason because it later tells us his little girl's 12 years old and instantly his mind would have sped 100 miles an hour as his head goes back to, we've got to get to her. Jesus, please hurry. My daughter, it's not good. It, she's dying. This is an interruption and you promised. You gave me your word. She's lived her life. My little girl has not had the chance. Please, Jesus. But here's what unfortunately happens next. Verse 35. While he, Jesus, is still speaking... Some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, your daughter, she's gone. Your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? The man must have absolutely melted. I mean, we can read it as print on a page, but if we try to put ourselves in it, and, and for me, I have, unfortunately, a very vivid imagination. I, I call my wife's phone. She doesn't answer. I call her a second time. She doesn't answer. And all of a sudden, my mind goes a hundred different places going, okay, so did they get in a car accident? It, did she run off the road? And, and instantly I feel my heart start to race and I play out worst case scenarios and I have to stop myself. I can't let myself go down those roads of imagining what it could be. But you're a dad no longer imagining what it could be. And I've imagined this week reading this, what it would be like to get news like this, but I have not successfully imagined what it would be like to try to recover after this. 
And for some of you, you've had to walk through this. For me, I have two little girls, uh, one who just turned nine, one who's four. The four-year-old, my wife and I love that she still, when she wants to be picked up, she just says, hold you, rather than hold me, because we say, do you want me to hold you? So she just walks up to us and goes, hold you. As a dad, to never hear that again. Yesterday, it was Riley coming into my little back office. I did the, the COVID he shed, not a she shed, office conversion in the backyard. And she came in and sat down. She'd gone to the store with Lindsay and brought back just from the grocery store one of the little sushi rolls because she loves to try new foods. And so she shared my office seat with me and we tried to roll together. And her little sense of adventure and all, like her little personality, it was such a sweet, precious moment to think of having no more of those. With Declan, the four-year-old, she's gotten into the idea of secrets in the last couple of months. And so I tell her pretty much every day, Declan, I need to tell you a secret. So she comes real close and she's all excited. And every day I tell her the same thing. I tell her, Declan, I am so glad I get to be your daddy. Declan, I love to be your daddy. And every day she responds the same way and says, I'm so glad to be your Declan. <laughs> to miss out on all the moments of seeing them grow up. No graduations, no first date at 35. <laughs> no. A moment like this is every parent's worst nightmare. But there's icing on the cake because he had a remedy. He, he had a plan. But God didn't go along with his plan. And unfortunately for some of us, we feel like we understand that. While he's still speaking, some came from his house who said, Your daughter, she's gone, she's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? And as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken to him, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Don't be afraid, only believe. I picture Jesus not just turning and looking at the guy, but Jesus lifting the man back up off the ground who just collapsed where he stood, looking him in the eyes and gently saying it. Don't be afraid, only believe. Or another translation, keep believing, keep trusting. Even if, even when it looks like all hope in your life and your story is lost, if Jesus was capable of doing what no one else could for that woman in front of him, can't he handle another predicament like this also? Oh, but in this story, now she's gone, she's dead. This is literally the worst case scenario. But think for a moment, if Jesus can handle this, then he can handle anything. And remember Mark's first century audience who are facing death were persecuted to the point of becoming martyrs, living under that kind of pressure, going, we had a plan, where are you? And Jesus now allows them to find themselves in this story. And he says, don't be afraid, only believe. I hate those moments in life where you feel like that's all you've got left. When you're like, I don't even have another plan. I, I don't even have another thing to give a, a chance to. I, I, I've got no other options. It's either stay seated on the floor, laying here broken, or to stand up and say, I'm willing to believe and move forward, even if I can't see what the plan is. But that's where Jesus has led this man. Verse 37, and Jesus permitted no one to follow him except for Peter, James, and John, the brothers of James. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult. This was a massive scene, an uproar, and those who wept and wailed loudly. When he came in, 
He said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. As Jesus walks up on uh, to probably the property that this man's home is, is placed on, the hired mourners, which is such a weird op- occupation, have already arrived and are making a big scene. The funeral for someone who died back in ancient times was often, it took place as fast as possible, within hours for sure. By the, by the end of the day, as the sun was setting, it was already done. They were already buried because of the fear of the, what the heat could do to their body and then also the fear of the spread of disease. And so it was taking place very quickly. And so the way to get the word out to the neighborhood and the city was to hire a bunch of mourners who would come and make a massive scene. They're screaming and crying. They're tearing their clothes. They're throwing dust in the air purposefully making a big scene. Picture that. The dust in the air is lingering in the hot, humid air. They're hearing screams and cries, and so people are hearing something, then they look for the dust cloud, and that's when they'd go to look, and they'd arrive at his house and go, okay, it's too late. It's already done. And preparations would be quickly made to bury her body. Now, you need to know she was, in fact, dead. Jesus isn't confused here when he says, he makes a comment that she's only sleeping. He's purposefully communicating something, though, that the New Testament authors will also pick up on and use. He uses sleep here in referencing death, I think, to challenge the, the culture's thought of death, that it's not the end. Because the unorthodox thought that death was the end, and Jesus is communicating that it's not. Just like sleep, you go to bed here, you wake up alive and aware, conscious somewhere else. You wake up again, there's more to come. But for the orthodox, they believed in the resurrection, but they were foggy at best on what they thought about it. And Jesus will come on the scene to make it clear that he is the key to the resurrection. In fact, he says, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asked, do you believe in this? Jesus used sleep in referencing death to teach us that death is not the end nor the enemy for the follower of Jesus. It's neither the end nor the enemy. A wasted life is the enemy. We don't have to fear death any more than we would fear sleep because there's, there's no unknown about it. Jesus changes a destination in death, but he also changes, I believe, a view of death that it's, we're freed from the fear, from the entrapment of the fear of death. The scene, though, shifts because of his comment from mourning to mocking after they hear Jesus say that she's just asleep. Again, it says, verse 40, they ridiculed him, but when he had put them all outside, he took the father and mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was laying. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumi, which is translated little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl arose and walked. For she was 12 years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. But he commanded them strictly that they should, uh, that no one should know it, and said that something should be given to her to eat. Now, if they thought for a moment, it's maybe it's just a spirit. Maybe she's not really alive. Maybe this isn't the real thing. Jesus says, well, then feed her something. See that this is real, that this is a real, physical, tangible person. This is your little girl, Talitha Kumi, the term of endearment, honey, sweetheart. This is no abracadabra moment. This is more like taking the hand of one of your little children while they lay asleep and you slowly, gently wake them up. It's, it's Lindsay and I going to Declan at times and just whispering to her, Declan, it's a sunny day. And she wakes up and that's always her first comment. 
Listen, there's such a contrast between these two individuals who we just walked through their stories, but there's also some similarities. There are comparisons that are drawn in that both of these are females. They're both addressed as daughter. They're both unclean and untouchable, one because of sickness, the other because of death. Both are touched and made clean by Jesus. Both share a number in common as well. For 12 years of agony for this little girl, we don't know if she's been sick her whole life. We only know that she's 12 years old. Listen, but think, though, about what it looks like when the kingdom of Jesus comes, that the untouchable are touched, that the unclean are made clean, that both the prominent man and the poor woman come to Jesus in faith and belong there with him. Kingdom looks like healing for the insider and the outcast. It looks like the end of disease and sickness. It looks like the defeat of death itself. It looks like explosive power, dunamis, dynamite, dynamic power, the power of God to dynamically transform a life. It looks like life, like hope, like joy, like peace, like shalom, like love again. Let me just tell you real quick and then we're done why I love this story so much. Remember that in Jesus, we see God. And and when we see him in this story, he's not distant and detached. He's compassionate and gentle. My daughter, oh sweetie, my child. What I love about the story is that I'm not just a face in the crowd, that she was an individual he pulled away from the crowd to speak to. I'm not just a face in a crowd. I'm addressed as a son and a daughter. In fact, I'm instructed by Jesus to approach God as a father. You see, to Jesus, the social distinctions of insider and outcast didn't and don't exist. That's what I like about this story. That Jesus always in his ministry treated failures as if they had never ever even failed. What I like about this story is that Jesus offers more than just a touch. And so it's, it's an invitation for us to not just be content with a simple touch. Because the truth is, sometimes that's what we come for. We come just needing a little bit of wisdom about what to do. What I need, Jesus, is maybe a little bit of healing, just, just because of how I'm feeling today. What I need is a little bit of peace in regards to what I'm facing. But then we get the healing, we get the comfort, we find the peace, but then we, like that woman tried to do, we slip back into the crowd. But Jesus wasn't content with giving just a touch. Instead, he, he called her out publicly, who was it who touched me? He didn't do that to embarrass her. It was because he wanted to embrace her. He wanted her to know him and be known by him. She told him the whole of her story. And she began to understand that it wasn't a garment that held that power. It was a person. You see, he's not a cosmic vending machine. We don't drop our coins in with our prayers and good works and then push B6 for like a, a new relationships or A13 for happy long life with great health. No, he's a loving parent who, yes, wants to provide for you, but wants to be so much more than just provider. Remember that you are a son or a daughter. Don't be content with just a touch or just punching some buttons. He's more than that. You see, in our story, they approached him with a problem And we're no doubt shocked when he treated them as more than just a person with a problem. He treated them as a child. Here's what I like about this story. I really like that Jesus wasn't frantic. That he wasn't panicky or even in a hurry, even when everyone else around him was exactly that. Author Timothy Keller, he makes the observation in this story. He says that if Jesus was a modern physician in modern America, the medical board would have fired him for malpractice. 
And he's right, because when you think about it, there's a huge difference between a chronic illness and an acute illness. One is ongoing and not life-threatening. That's the woman who was sick for 12 years. While the other, it's life-threatening and has to have the priority for, for treatment. It needs to take first priority, and then we set aside the chronic illness to be dealt with later. But Jesus in the story flips that on its head and could not be rushed and never even seemed to be panicky. It wasn't because he was clueless, though, and, and, and like a doctor without a plan. But it tells me that maybe I should spend a lot less time feeling frantic, panicky, and in a hurry and spend more time choosing to trust his character and his care for me. I like that he's not panicking in this story. Let me tell you why I like this story. I, I like this. I like that sometimes the wait gives opportunity for him to display his wisdom and power. I've learned over time that God sees as much value in waiting as he does in the arriving. That for God, the journey seems as important and valuable as the destination itself. For me, I just want to get there. But he sees value in the process of getting me there. Think about the life of even King David. He's, he's anointed king as an immature teenager. He's crowned king as a brave and fearless warrior and a man who had learned to trust God for his own provision, who could now trust God's care for an entire nation's provision. He was anointed as an immature teenager. He was crowned king, though, as a warrior and a fearless leader. But in between those things were 17 years of pain and of waiting. But God knew what he was doing. The journey was valuable. The process was something that he couldn't have done without. See, I think there's a moment in this story where what Jesus does is he looks, in a sense, past Jairus, the, the broken-hearted father, and he looks over his shoulder peering our direction when he says, don't be afraid, only believe. Remember when he calms the storm, just two stories before this, when they come and they ask him, they wake him and say, Jesus, do you even care? Do you even care that we're perishing? Remember his question, it cut like a knife. He, he simply asked them, why are you so afraid? Why is it that you have no faith? And for them, they must have been taken back. What do you mean, why? Well, well, because we thought that you didn't love us. Because if you really loved us, you wouldn't let this kind of a thing happen to us. You see, his question, it cut them like a knife because it revealed that their very premise was wrong, that, that they should have known better, that we should know better than to think that being a follower of Jesus means that we're isolated from the storms of life. You see, because our faith is not that God gets me out of every storm. Our fear is that God is present with me in every storm. And that he has power over everything in the created universe that he's capable. Not even the powers of death and the grave can stand in his way. And that he has the ability and promises to make beauty from ashes. My, my faith is that he's good. And if I fast forward to the end of the book, he does still every storm. He heals every disease. He lifts every burdened soul. He restores every broken heart. That's my future. That's my hope, Jesus looks past Jairus over his shoulder, our direction, as he reminds us that the great physician's delays in treatment plan are not signs of malpractice or of malevolence. His grace and love are still compatible with what can feel like an incomprehensible delay in my own life, or maybe in yours. Keller writes in his book, Jesus the King, he says, what if it's not? What if it's not? that Jesus would say, I will not be hurried even though I love you. What if it's, I will not be hurried because I love you? I know, that, I know what I'm doing, 
And if you try to impose your understanding of schedule and timing on me, you will struggle to feel loved by me. Yes, the way God works, his timing and even his delays can be an absolute mystery to me as a person, but it should not be taken as an indication that he's disinterested. It's been widely, wisely said that God's delays are not delays of inactivity, but of preparation. My friends, a delay is not a denial. It's a delay, maybe until today. Maybe it's been a delay until tomorrow. Maybe it's a delay until our future with him where all the wrongs are made right and where tears are wiped away. We're not alone in our feelings of disappointment because we find another man in this story who's so very broken over those delays. It probably seemed to Jairus and the disciples that Jesus' delay in this moment was for absolutely no good reason, but that's because they didn't have all the facts. And we never do. It's so silly and arrogant, the, the way we respond, the way I respond, I'll say me, the way I respond in times. In these moments, we think that what God is guilty of is malpractice in my life. And in those moments, we have to stop and remind ourselves that we do not have an answer for every time that we suffer, but we always know what the answer is not. The answer is never that God doesn't care. He cares so deeply for us that he embraced a cross for us to end all sin, sickness, suffering, and death. And that's the last thing I like about this story, is that when Jesus healed her, he felt something. What he felt was power going out. What he felt was strength shifting to weakness so that someone else could be made strong. What he would later feel is not just someone reaching their hand his direction, but his hands being outstretched. Where he wouldn't just experience weakness, but he'd experience suffering and death of a cross. And by him choosing to outstretch his arms, he made a way for every person to be made healed and whole well again, to re-enter the shalom, the peace of God, to be reconciled with him and with everyone else around us. I hate those moments when you're a parent where you catch yourself lying to your kids, especially when it's over good things. Like in the middle of the night when they're afraid and you go in and you hug them and you begin to whisper to them, I'm right here and I'll always protect you. But then sometimes they're sick and you go, but I can't protect you from this. Or when you whisper and say, I'm right here and I'll never let anything bad happen to you. But you know that there's no way you can do that. You can't offer that. What you offer is just your love and your presence. When we were kids, that was enough. Just to know love and presence. If we have a God this wise, if we have a God this gracious, if we have a God this loving, why would we rush him? And when he takes us by the hand and says, my child, and when he goes to lift us up and says, I'm here, I'm for you, and I'll never leave you, and I love you, and a cross reminds you of that. My friends, we ought not to hurry him along or to shake a fist claiming malpractice because he loved us enough to end all sin, sickness, suffering, and death once and for all. There's a moment here where Jesus looks beyond their shoulders our direction and says, won't you trust me? And so Jesus, for all of us, we have areas in our lives where it's so very difficult for us to trust. And, and for some of us, it's an experience that we can think back on, that we're thankful that that chapter's over. But for others, they're in, in the middle of it. 
that chapter's still being written. And God, it's hard because it's written not just as print on page, it's written in pain and sometimes in tears. God, there's a reminder here where you don't look our way condemning, where you're not angry yelling that we should trust, but with a gentle voice addressing as a child. You invite us to do so. And there is a peace that's connected to that. It's not an absence of problems or conflict. There's a shalom, a peace that we can experience when we turn away and turn towards you. God, I, I don't know what's happening in the lives of people who are present today. I know for few. And for some of them, what they face even this week, this story is you addressing them, reminding them that you're with them and for them. But God, this is also an opportunity for us to stand and to ask you to do the miraculous. This story is not just about dealing with disappointment and continuing to move forward in faith. This is also a story about how you can change things in an instant to touch and heal and restore. And so we, by faith, we throw these situations, casting our cares before you, knowing that you care about what happens to us, and we appeal to you, Jesus, the one who has power to touch and heal people who are here in our midst today. And so, Jesus, we invite you to move in power and give strength and healing in bodies. We know that you can do that even in a relationship and in a home, in a marriage. So we invite you, Jesus, come and heal what's been destroyed. We invite you, Jesus, into the situations that feel beyond hope. They're hopeless. We've buried them already. Jesus, today we walk you to those gravestones and say, Jesus, if you can bring life here, we invite you to do it. Jesus, we look your direction. We're so thankful that we can. And what we see is a Savior on a cross, and what we see is a Father who loves us. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.